Hi there, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast, which presents the interviews from our live stage shows. Today we're talking about the proposed minimum wage increase in St. Paul. We have three guests. Our first is Rebecca Naker, who is the city council member for Ward 2 in St. Paul. Our other two guests are part of a study committee put together by the nonpartisan group the Citizens League to study the issue of the minimum wage. They were Veronica Mendez-Moore, who is the co-director of Centro de Trabajadores Unidos en Lucha, and B. Kyle, the president and CEO of the St. Paul Area Chamber of Commerce. All right, so thank you all so much for being here to talk about this. So, um, uh, minimum wage... uh, it's super complicated. I've been trying to think about even just like where to start with this. And so uh, let me ask this. Why? I, I alluded to this if some folks saw we sent out an email saying like, oh, this show is going to be really interesting and really good. Um, but it's also been actually kind of complicated to put this show together because uh, there's just a lot of different interests and a lot of different communities that have a lot of different things to say about this. So I'm wondering, again, maybe as just an opening, why is this so complicated? Maybe if you can give us like the 30-second like overview of why is this as hard and complicated as it is? Councilwoman? Thank you. Well, first of all, I just want to say having to follow St. Paul out here is a little unfair. I thought this was going to be, you know, laid back, not high pressure. It's probably the hardest entrance I've ever had to make. Just want to put it out there. Um, it's, it's great to be here. It's especially great to not be having to do the improv like back in high school. So that feels great. I would say the reason that this is complicated is that it really matters. It's a really important topic. Um, it's critical that we raise the wage and it's critical that we do it right. And, as, you know, I'm in the maybe unenviable position of making a lot of decisions that are really complicated, that affect a lot of people's lives, that have to be thought through really carefully. Um, but this is probably one of, one of the biggest ones I've had to make. So I think, you know, the more important an issue is, the greater the responsibility to get it right, and the more complicated it is. Yeah. And either of you want to add anything? Are you, so I should have said in the intro, uh, both of you are on the committee that the Citizens League has uh, of folks from a variety of backgrounds who are looking at this and meeting regularly to talk about a variety of these issues and try and come to a series of recommendations for the city or at least, uh, you know, I don't know, like worst case scenarios. I mean, what, how, how are you, how is the, the work in terms of what you're trying to produce there? So, so I can say that, you know, through the, the many meetings that we've been involved in and all the information that we've gotten and hearing from all, uh, many different perspectives, um, I think that there are a lot of different pieces to it. But at the end of the day, I'm going to be frank, I don't think it's complicated. I think that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that people can't survive on the, the minimum wage that we have right now and that as a society, we have a responsibility to make sure that to to be human, to have humanity and make sure that the people who live in our city and work in our city actually have enough money to be able to take care of their families. I see, you know, I I have a a member of my organization named Cardell who's now also on the, on this, um, as a part of this task force, who's six, 17 years old, just graduated from high school. And he's working at McDonald's about 25 hours a week to be able to help his mom pay rent. And because he wants to be a doctor, and he's saving up his money to be able to be a doctor. And just because he's 17 doesn't mean that he doesn't need to make a living wage. So I, to me, at the end of the day, while there's nuance, 
It's not complicated. So uh, when you say it's not complicated, so I was, as a couple people in the audience know, a very poor public policy student. And, like, the one thing that you remember uh, after two years being out of public policy school is that almost everything has trade-offs, right? Like, so at some point there's, there's a trade-off. And so I'm wondering from uh, anyone on the panel, like, what are those different, like, competing factors? Because, I mean, yes, I think that... I don't think that anybody up here would disagree with the point that you just made. Yeah, we want people to make a living wage. And yet, there are other pieces pulling at this or pushing at it from other angles. So, you don't mind, I'll just say one thing to that point. Um, I think that's the challenge. There are, there are unintended consequences of policy. It doesn't really matter what policy we're discussing. When you're making a change, there are ripple effects and that's of concern. So the question is in this whole process is how can we be wise in how we implement this such that we get what we all agree to be an important thing? And from the employer's perspective, the challenge is when you're looking at a finite pot of money and you've got to figure out how to pay all these things, that pot of money doesn't change given a really important social challenge that we have. So what we're trying to do is really be thoughtful about how, first of all, what's the problem we're solving for, right? Is this the best way to do it? Are there other ways we could do it, uh, we could affect that differently as well as? So I don't, the challenge is the, the multifaceted yeah. nature of the conversation. Uh, Councilwoman, let me ask you, you're, uh, there have been several pieces written, actually, about that you're sort of in the thick of this, even as you yourself said, uh, because of the district you represented, because of the businesses that are here. So just what are you hearing? Because I imagine you're hearing elements of both of these, people who are saying this is a, you know, a, a rights issue and this is a human issue and this is like why should someone not be able to live on working 40 hours or even more a week? And then I imagine you hear the other side of that, which is this could have very different consequences. So just tell us maybe some of the things you hear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and first of all, I completely agree with Veronica. I mean, we have 100, we have 40% of people in St. Paul living at or below 185% of poverty. So we have a poverty crisis in St. Paul. We know we have income inequality. We see the problems in housing and education that those affect. Um, and it's, it's kind of crazy that in 1938, when the minimum wage was introduced, and it was 25 cents, it went farther towards the cost of monthly rent than it does now, adjusted for inflation. So that's, that's surprising. And that was to keep people out of basically sweatshop wages. That was not supposed to be a living wage at that time. The challenge that I have, the, the way that I think it's complicated, is it's one thing, I think, when you kind of think about it as, well, there are these fat cat business owners who manipulate and exploit their employees and don't pay them a fair wage. I think people are pretty much on the same point there. Would you like to name those people quickly? Yes, uh, I would like... <laughs> putting me on the spot. Um, so, there's, so there's that that I think everybody kind of agrees on. And then there's the stories that, that we've all been hearing from people who are working hard just to make ends meet and should be paid a fair wage and that it's pretty easy to agree there. The, the place where I think it gets complicated is when you hear from a nonprofit that is training young people for jobs. I used to work at Achieve Minneapolis, supporting the Minneapolis public schools. We had a program called Step Up in the city of St. Paul. We have a program called Right Track. Lots of nonprofits do this. They take young people. They try to prepare them for the working world. They're paying them the wage that they can get reimbursed from the state in grants, and they're going to have a lot of challenges if our wage goes up and the state and the feds don't decide to raise their reimbursement costs. So that becomes a challenge. Or... When you hear from a small business owner 
who's a first-generation immigrant, who's saying, you know, I'm one of the people that this policy is intended to help. I have a small business. I have workers. I don't see how I'm going to make, make ends meet. And specifically, when you hear about people, and I wasn't even aware of these folks until I started talking, listening to people, who can't just raise their prices to compensate. Because in my mind, I would much rather pay through, through eating out and paying a higher bill there or paying a higher bill for the clothes I buy than to, to have to ask people to, to go on public assistance and support them that way. I would much rather do that with dignity and support people through an income. But there are places like bookstores. Their prices are set. They cannot raise that amount that's on the barcode for their books. So there, there, really? are, there are people... I didn't know that. Red Balloon Bookshop. We had a great conversation about this. I don't know if they've come to the committee yet, but it's that thing that U.S. and Canada always looks a lot worse for the price. That doesn't change. I always... You know, it's one of the reasons I'm patriotic. Um, so that, that those are some of the challenging, you know, nuances, I think. So I'll name names. Yeah. McDonald's, Burger King, all is particularly fast food corporations. These are kind of like the vulture, the like the vampires that are really making, vulture like, vampires. Vulture vampires yeah. that are extracting from communities, and then there are of course like smaller businesses, and it's much more complicated. But in you know, I've been I've been organizing um, with low wage workers. And previously to that, a union organizer um, for like 15 years. And I've talked to workers who make minimum wage or below minimum wage who say, I have to choose between buying uh, fresh uh, fruit and vegetables or between sending my kids to an after-school program or between, between buying meat and between paying for, for clothes, for my new clothes to go to school. And what I think is interesting is, like, when I have those conversations with workers that are making minimum wage, that's the they're making that distinction about what they buy and don't. But when I talk to workers that are making a living wage, they buy all of it, which means that I think it's it's not necessarily just a finite pot of money because what happens when someone can buy meat and they can buy fruit and they can buy clothes is they do. And then it, I think it changes the equation about, like, what the pot of money is that employers have to work with. So it's a demand side, yeah, um, economics question. You know, one, of, one, of the, one of the challenges from my mind is this, I, where I have heartburn is the demonization of the employer, right? Um, if you, and that's why I refer to businesses as employers. There's a person, you know, if, you, if you're working, you're an individual, you're a person, you're a human. If you get behind the desk of the person who owns the company, it's a person. He or she's got a family to feed. He or she's got a, a company and employees they care about. And so, I'm hesitant, and frankly, it's distressing for me when I hear industry employers being demonized or put on one side of the issue or another when it isn't about I'm a good person, therefore, and I'm a bad person, therefore, and that's where I get the heartburn because it's, for example, this is one of my challenges with this whole process. What's the problem we're wanting to solve in St. Paul? And if it's this disproportionately high level of people in poverty, and of that percentage, a disproportionately high percentage, are people of color. How are we tackling that project, that challenge? Is the way to do it increasing the minimum wage? Maybe. From an employer's perspective, he or she is going to say, I'm going to take, right now, I pay less than, I pay 9.65 in the state minimum wage, and I bring in people who are less than qualified because I want to give back to the community. If I'm required to pay this, I've got to get rid of half of my workers, and I'm going to take the best worker, whether they come from Roseville or Minneapolis or South St. Paul or St. Paul. So it's, it's, not, it's not addressing that per specifically. I, I, I appreciate that, and I really appreciate the piece about that business owners are people. It's actually a big 
we always want to, uh, with the show, show that, you know, ultimately these are stories about people on a variety of sides of this issue. The, the piece that I wonder is, so whether or not uh, you're in a place where you want to say the minimum wage is a place, is it fair, though, to say that there needs to be a public policy, some sort of, like, government element to the solution? Because I would, the piece I would wonder, if we don't do that, why hasn't, you know, the market fixed some of this, right? Like, we have these disparities. There's nothing stopping businesses from trying to alleviate some of that, and we haven't, so... I don't disagree with that. My position on that would be this is a state-level conversation. It's, so my position would be it's a preemption issue. The fact that we create these economic islands in St. Paul and Minneapolis, where all I'm going to do now is go across the border and open my restaurant two blocks away, and now I'm in South St. Paul. This is a state-level issue, but because the state government is so challenged to get anything done... That's such a polite Minnesota way to say the I mean, state government is just so That challenged. wasn't what I was going to say. They are so, they're very interesting uh, there. Well, and city, city government is the most, in my mind, you're right in the grassroots. You're right in the thick of it. You can get things done. But the results are you've got St. Paul's an economic island. So is Minneapolis. How do we compete? Can I just, something on your question, Tane? Because yeah. I think that the, the point about government policy is interesting because I've had a lot of conversations with business owners about this topic and it almost seems like we're, we're, we're having a conversation about whether or not there should be a minimum wage. This sort of like, well, government shouldn't tell me how to run my business. Government shouldn't get in my way. And, you know, my response to that is always, well, we, we already do in a lot of ways, um, probably too many. And one of those is in telling you what you have to pay your employees. The question to, to them that I ask is, we have a minimum wage. What should the minimum wage reflect? What should that be? What's the outcome that we want the minimum wage to be? And I think that's the same question we all need to grapple with. Again, to the complexity, what should the minimum wage be that we raise it to? What's the outcome we're trying to achieve? I would say I think someone should work full time, have two kids, and not be in poverty. That's the way I would define it, looking at the population in St. Paul, what I think the minimum wage should do. But is that $15 an hour today? Is that $19 an hour today? Is that 15 in 10 years or in seven, like Minneapolis is going? I mean, the, the amount of money and the quickness with which you get there and when you peg it to inflation, like this is where these things get super complicated. And I would say I would, I would love to pass 15 at a state level and at a federal level and even more and like move it up to, to becoming a living wage. So I think that's absolutely great. I think the reality, though, is that you know, I, I think one industry in particular that has raised a lot the issue of, well, we'll just move to a different city has been the restaurant industry. I've heard a lot of that. Like, why wouldn't we just move somewhere else? In Minneapolis, we now are moving towards a $15 an hour minimum wage. And that discussion, like, it has been inevitable for a few years that that was going to happen. And yet the growth of restaurants in the city of Minneapolis has gone up every year significantly over the last few years. And so I think that's an important point um, to make. And, And just one other thing I think is important in thinking about, like, how do we define what the minimum wage is is I, I appreciate you saying like what is that what is the value like what is it like we want a family of you know a family of four I think that's important but I think we also have to think about the fact that families look different today than they did in a, traditionally in the you know 50s or whatever and think about the fact that there are, are actually a lot of families where youth are breadwinners and they have significant responsibilities and I just I think that that's something important to, to take into consideration when we're thinking about how the minimum wage is helping people. Well, can I ask you to flesh that out then? Like, so how, you know, to the councilwoman's uh, question, how do you think about, like, what that wage should be? Are you, is it an outcome-type piece where you're like, as the councilwoman suggested, you know, 
family of four or whatever is able to do that. You suggested maybe it's more, there's more to it than that. So I don't know. What's your metric? How are you trying to balance that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about, it's really hard to, to define family yeah. these days. Yeah, and no so, kidding. Yeah. Right? And so, but I think it has to be like looking at what different family structures look like but, and thinking about how people can all afford to live a dignified life with the income that they have and the, in the, in the, the dependents that they have and the people that they support to be able to, to live with dignity and joy. Like, I think that that's what the minimum wage should reflect. And I don't think 15 is enough. I will be very honest. I think 15, we are at a place in our country and particularly now in the Midwest where like 15 is a conversation we can have, but I still think it's not enough. So I'm actually really interested in this question about the, if you want to phrase it as Minneapolis-St. Paul being islands, because some of the other places that we've seen raise the wage are slightly different. Minneapolis and St. Paul are sort of two relatively, like, medium, smallish cities in a much larger metro. So Seattle obviously raised their wage, but they're much, like, Seattle is sort of just Seattle in a way that we're not. And so... I, I don't know. This I, is this something that you hear from members of the the chamber who say I've got offices in different places. I mean, how how does that? Just assuming you know the wage does go up, does that play out? Well, Hubbard Broadcasting, if you've ever been in their building, has a line painted on the floor. Part of it is St. Paul, part of it is Minneapolis. When you cross over to this side of the building for the afternoon, there's one wage. You cross over to that side of the building, that's another wage. I mean... So does everybody just huddle on the Minneapolis side? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's... The challenge is, how do you as an employer implement this? You know, it's... In St. Paul, 8,000 people make under 965. Another 48,000 of us make between 965 and $15. We're talking about... So what is that math? You do it. It's about 56,000. And we're looking at food service. We're looking at home health care. We're looking at entertainment. Um, 90% of the employers, for whom this is not an issue for 90% of the employers. It is a huge issue for that 56,000 people. The challenge is most of those folks are working for the smaller companies or the micro businesses. So then you turn around and you talk to the micro employer who says, I don't make nine sixty-five an hour. I care enough about my employees to make sure they've got health care. We talk to tip workers who say, I've been working for a big, big name in, in um, restaurants for 15 years. When they raise my wage, they reduce my health care. Oh, there's all these roll-off consequences that we just... I just uh, am really defending the whole idea about let's be thoughtful about what we're doing because if that micro-employer has to lay off two of his or her three employees to stay in business, those, I guess the answer is those two or three employees find new work, but that's the challenge. And I would just say Hubbard Broadcasting should just get its act together and move to St. Paul entirely. I mean, <laughs> let's solve that issue right there. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, another, so on a similar vein, uh, I, I've talked to some folks from the Citizens League before this, and one of the things I know folks are thinking about is Minneapolis is raising its wage, and they're doing it, as you noted, Councilwoman, like uh, in a sort of tiered way. Like it's going to go up a certain amount over a period of years. Yeah. And so they were pointing out 
Well, does St. Paul basically just do the same thing that Minneapolis does, which I know, St. Paul, you hate doing the same thing that Minneapolis does. But if you don't do that, then it gets to be this super kind of weird thing where it's like maybe the wage goes up a little in Minneapolis in January and then it goes up in St. Paul in like August and like it kind of flips back and forth and it gets to be complicated. So um, are you going to just swallow your pride and just say, fine, we'll just do what Minneapolis So let's be clear. I only mind doing what Minneapolis does when it's wrong, which is often the case. Um, no, I, I think, um, I mean, I, I completely agree that it would be easier if the state would just show leadership on this issue and get this done and get lots of other things done too. But the fact is we can't wait for that. So um, would it be easier for employers? Would it probably be smoother for economic development if we had one policy across the state? Absolutely. But as Veronica said, as B said, I mean, we just, we can't wait around for that. So I don't know what outcomes we're going to come to. I'm really happy that we developed this thoughtful process um, to have such amazing leaders that are on, as are on stage with me leading this and talking to people and figuring out, and frankly, I think it's great that we have a Minneapolis and a St. Paul and that we're not just a Seattle because that gives us a second thoughtful approach process, whoever does it first or second, um, to look at it and to study it. And we're taking a different approach from Minneapolis and we may come up with an entirely new and better way to do it. Veronica, are there any things that Minneapolis did wrong? Uh, Yes. Um, I think a lot was accomplished in Minneapolis, and I feel really proud of the work that me and other folks in this room and across and around Minneapolis did to make that happen. I think a particular problem that we had was, and this is like, it's nuanced. Well, one piece is I think it's taking too long to get there. It's It's too long for the phase in. And even the small businesses that we were working with around this said that they thought they could get there in five years. They said, let's do two years phase in for big business and five for small business. That's what they wanted. But that's not what ended up happening. It ended up being seven years for small business. So that, I think, is a piece. But the the nuanced piece is um, there was a – the way that we define what a small business is, I think, was really inaccurate in that it was defined as how many employees there are at your storefront. So let's say you are Target and you have ten stores in Minneapolis, which they don't. They have like four or something. But let's say they only had 99 employees in each one of those stores. All of a sudden, Target is considered a small business because they have less than 100 workers in their store, oh, which is absurd. And I'm, this is not a thing on Target, but I'm just saying, like, that's a, that's a ridiculous way to calculate whether or not an employer is a big employer or a small employer. And I think that we need to be mindful of doing that differently in St. Paul because there can be massive employers that just have smaller storefronts. It's just not an appropriate way to define it. How should we define the size of businesses, St. Paul Chamber of Commerce president. Well, I'm a fan of headcount because I am a fan of not necessarily in location, but as an organization because it isn't the targets that are challenged by this. It's the five-employee bakery. It's the four-employee startup at Osborne 370. It's the gal who's got a bakery in her house. Those are the people who are it disproportionately impacted by this. So my vote is that we base it on the size of the company in terms of number of employees. So I should uh, announce, we're going to open this up for you all to ask questions of our guests in the second half of the show. Um, before we turn it over to our cast, though, I wanted to ask one last uh, political question, which is just uh, Mayor Carter, who is going to be a guest on the show on July 31st. Please come back. Um, but 
has already said in song form, actually, at <laughs> Minroast, uh, that he, A, supports a minimum wage, and B, is against a tip uh, credit penalty, however you want to frame that. Uh, so why are we even having this conversation? I hear St. Paul has a strong mayor system, and he gets to just do whatever he wants. So I feel like I'm on, like, How a Bill Becomes a Lost, yes. House Rock version of this, and I can't sing it. Oh, God. I thought I wasn't going to have to perform. You said you wanted to do some I know, theater. I did. Um, I kind of want to. It's bringing me back. Um, yeah, so we have a strong mayor-council system in St. Paul. Works a lot like the federal government, and uh, it's great. We have two separate branches of government that get to... Um, we propose the policy. The mayor signs off on it. We can override it with a five-person veto, a supermajority. And, um, again, I think I, I agree with the mayor that we have to raise the wage, and I think he's taken some – he has his specifics already outlined. I'm also really proud of the thoughtful process that we committed to before he uh, was elected or took office, and I'm really glad that we're staying the course on that. I think it's giving our business owners, our residents – a, a sense of predictability as to how we're going forward with this um, and a great opportunity to weigh in. Okay, well, uh, we're going to bring all three of you back in the second half of the show to, to answer some more questions from our audience. And, uh, but for right this moment, can we do a tremendous round of applause for these three amazing guests? Uh, so here, I can take these. Yeah. Okay, so if you have a question, please raise your hand and I will race towards you in a non-threatening manner with this microphone. Uh, raise your hand. Oh, all the questions are in the back. Good. Uh, that's helpful. Oh, I forgot to say, I'm sorry. If you have a question, I will uh, give you a lovely theater of public policy pop socket uh, to put on your cell phone. My question is regarding uh, the tip credit. So some servers make 30 to $40 an hour, and should they have more minimum wage plus that, or should we use some of that money to equalize the playing field? Can I start with that one? That's a conversation we've had, and that's a very interesting question. That's one of the examples of the nuances we're wrestling with, right? What are we really trying to solve for? One of the panels presented this idea of a super wage, um, the, and on that panel were servers, because we all know that not every server who gets tips makes $15 an hour. We know that some do. The super wage idea is a guarantee of 15, and you get to keep on top. It's about a no downside risk for the servers, which allows the employer to have more um, revenue or less reduction in, in what their profit margin is to be able to pay for the back, back of the house. So we are exploring that. I don't know that we've come to – we're still learning. So wait, can you flesh – super wage, can you flesh called. that out just a tiny bit? So it's – I know, it's a little complicated. Ha, the channel, yeah, the, how would that – so uh, the – yeah. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so if, if I was a, a server and uh, my, you know, wage got me – if tips got me to more than $15, then – I, I, I'm not sure I can wrap my head around so this. So let's, the, the example that the servers presented to us was there was a server in a full service restaurant sitting next to one of the, um, like a sous chef in the back, uh, one of the senior cooks. And they both agreed that the server already makes 25 to $30 an hour, such that the $15 minimum wage conversation isn't applicable to that person, as, as that person perceived it. Whereas the folks who are in the back of the house, it's very relevant. So the super wages they presented to us was the servers of, in this full-service restaurant stay at nine sixty-five, but they're guaranteed to make $15 an hour. 
And since 90-plus percent of, of tips are of basically restaurant service comes through a credit card anymore, you can track this, the, the tips. So at the end of a week or at the end of two weeks, if that server has made at least $15 an hour, they're getting, they're getting the 965, they get all their tips done. If at the end of those two weeks it looks like that server didn't make $15 an hour, the employer makes up the difference. So I'm hearing some uh, low place groans in the audience. So I'm wondering if anybody wants to articulate what the groans are uh, caused by. I could take a stab at it. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that it's important to note that if I work for, um, I don't know, what's a non-restaurant job? If I work for a dry cleaner, or like a dry a, cleaner. if I work for a dry cleaner and my employer sexually harasses me, I actually have a vehicle through which I can make a complaint. I can go to the Department of Labor. I can go to the EEOC. Like, it is illegal for my employer to sexually harass me, and there are mechanisms by which I can hold them accountable. When the majority of your wage, your money, is coming from random customers, you have no ability to do anything if they treat you inappropriately. And I think especially when we're talking about venues where alcohol is involved or where people don't feel accountable because they actually legally are not accountable, sexual harassment is a significant problem in the restaurant industry, and workers have no vehicle to be able to address it. And in fact, if they're really relying on their tips to be able to take home enough money to pay the bills and live a dignified and joyful life, then they actually have to endure sexual harassment to make that happen. Because if they're constantly complaining about it, it puts them in a really difficult position. And there's just no, there's nothing you can do about that random guy who like pats you on the butt as they walk by. There's nothing that you can do against him, and it'll impact your wage. There's a there's a lot in there. So, but it, it, to put, is that an argument against? the idea of tipping at all, like that we should just eliminate that. That's outside that. of the scope of our work, which yeah. is part well, of the challenge. Well, I, why not? Let, we'll just do that, too. Uh, so are we getting rid of Is that what? Yeah. I, you know, I, I can't speak to getting rid of tips altogether. I, I'm not a server, and I don't, I, don't, I don't want to take a position on that. But what I do think is important is that you are provided enough in wages from your employer to be able to live a dignified life and that tips are extra. And maybe it's a lot extra. And if it is, great. Why shouldn't it be? People are uh, people who are performing um, as server, who are working as servers, particularly in fine dining, are like, that's a skill. There's like hard work. Why shouldn't you get appropriately compensated? I just think the employer needs to be ensuring that you are making enough money to, to live and that tips are extra. Hmm. And and, Tane, if I may add, just because the question raised what I think is another layer of complexity that we haven't talked about yet, there's kind of the, there's the sort of idealistic and policy aspirational conversations that we have at the council table and in the public as we're setting policy. But then there's a whole other level, which is actually enforcing the policies that we set. And one of the things that I think about a lot is we might come up with a really clever solution. Like, I think the super wage is a really interesting, like, well, then everybody's guaranteed to get 15, right? And it doesn't require the employer to put it all in, and it still allows tips to be high, et cetera. But then if you think about actually reporting on that, right, hour by hour, how much did you make and how far did you fall short, and then what it will take for us to enforce that. I mean, I'm thinking about adding positions in our Department of Safety and Inspections or Human Rights, which, if you think about that, means an increase in taxes, right? So, like, and that that is a whole other level that is so far from, like, what should the policy be? But it is important that we craft something that we'll actually be able to enforce or it doesn't matter. 
Okay, there were other hands back here that I want to give a chance to, so let me come over to the side. Hello. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm just uh, curious, Rebecca, Councilwoman Rebecca Necker, you um, had mentioned a, uh, an intentional process that the city of St. Paul is taking in order to craft this policy, and I know that that includes the Citizen League Task Force. And I'm just interested in how the city council will take this recommendation knowing taking into account the bias that the task force may have, knowing that maybe there's one low-wage worker on the task force, if not two. So there's already um, a group of people that have been convened, but it is heavily represented by big business and industry. I, and maybe I should, we should, I, I, I want the councilwoman to answer that first, but then also maybe our two representatives of that can actually talk about who's the committee and how it's been working or whatnot, but yeah. Thank you. I appreciate the question. I mean, I, I really am confident in the Citizens League as an institution and in their process, and I, I will let the, the members of the committee speak to the representation. Um, I, but that's not the end of the conversation, right? So the Citizens League will come back to us with their recommendations, and then actually the part that I'm most excited about, because one of the things I hate most about being a policymaker is I sit in my office, I have one person from one side come and talk to me in, about an issue on their side. Then they go away, and then someone else comes and talks to me about their side. Two totally different sets of facts. Did they come opinions. in through two different doors? They do. I have two doors. Wow. And th- <laughs> um, this would be such a great office well, if it could I'm be configured that way. So, yes, there are at least three each door. They talk to me about their issues. And then what I'm always left thinking is, I wish I could just sit here and listen to you two talk to each other because th- these kinds of conversations, and actually Mayor Carter talks about this beautifully, it should be... It should be a three-way conversation. I should also be able to listen to you talk to each other. So what's going to happen after the Citizens League report comes out, and it's not going to have a draft ordinance. It's going to have recommendations. It's going to have scenarios. Here's what happens if you do this, this or that. We're going to have a community conversation starting with a public meeting where everybody who cares about this issue will hear the Citizens League present their findings for the first time, and then people will be able to weigh in and hear each other weigh in, and we'll be able to listen to all of that. So I actually think the process after the report comes out is just as important as the process to get to the report. So I want to give um, both of you a chance to respond to this because there was a very pointed uh, critique here that the the. The committee that the Citizens League has put together uh, has under-representation of the actual people who might be affected by the wage. So can either of you talk about that? Well, I think we both will. But what I'll say is that, you know, the, the it's overrepresented by big business is one more – it just goes down that lane of there's an implied criticism about, which which is just so unfortunate, number one. Number two, I know that not everybody's in the room because everybody couldn't fit in the room. But what I can assure you, and I ask that you trust the process and the Citizens League, and we talked about the Citizens League and everybody clapped because they know who they are and what they do is about representing the voice of the community. They're doing that. I can assure you, and I guarantee you also, you give Pahua a call, she will talk to you. She went through, I don't know, 500 interviews in the phase one, and this isn't about Aside, in fact, I was chastised by group members of my panel when I used the you know this whole dichotomy of it's one side against another. This is this is not that. There are so many sides to this, and I promise you, all twenty some of us are interested in what is the most enforceable, reasonable, nuanced, addressing as many challenges and unintended consequences as possible. We don't have 
large employers, if there's a large employer voice, it's me representing what my largest members say, and they're not, this isn't their issue. We've got nonprofits. We've got folks who have federal contracts who will have to, what are they going to do with their disabled workers when they've got federal contracts that no longer comply with city law? We've got nonprofits who provide training for students, and they don't have the funding to pay $15 an hour to train these kids on how to be employable. We've got servers. Some make $15 or more an hour. Some don't. We've got a few employers. We've got servers on both sides of the tip adjustment debate. So I assure you, there is no overrepresentation on one side or the other. And then, I, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I would say I, you know, full transparency, it's not a, a lot of big business. It is business, though, and I think that it is important to note that there is one low wage worker on the panel. There's one. Um, and I appreciate the work that the Citizens League has done to make sure that there's a stipend so that person can be there, who can figure out work, who can make sure that they have, there's transportation costs. That's something that didn't happen in Minneapolis that I appreciate that's happening in St. Paul and is important. Um, so yay for that. Um, but I do think that it's unfortunate that we've got em, em, the, that we have employers that are speaking to lots of very specific issues, but not workers who are from those specific areas who can actually speak to how this actually impacts them. And I think on the, um, you know, I think as part of our process, and we talked about this last week, what's enforceable is a, and how do we enforce it is really critical. And, you know, I think it'll be critical that this, that this task force is coming up with some recommendations about what are the next steps that we need to think about when we're talking about enforcement, because I, I think you, somebody said earlier about some statistics about how much people were how many people were making between which wages and which wages. I found it astonishing. I've been doing this, this work of like working with low-wage workers who experience wage theft for 15 years. And when I saw that the data that said that 30% of black workers in St. Paul are making 965 or less, I was horrified. 30% of workers, black workers are making less than minimum wage. Why? What, what does that mean? Are there some exemptions that keep some people lower? Is there a significant amount of wage theft? Like, that's a crazy statistic. And I think it's really critical that we think about how are we making sure to enforce this so that that disparity doesn't happen. It's 12% of white workers, which in and of itself is horrifying. But that dis- disparity is significant. Okay, I definitely have a couple more hands. I know I, I do this one and then the, over there. I'll come back. Um, being a history buff... Councilman Necker, can you just repeat what you said about the 25 cent minimum wage that was instituted in 1938 that went covered more of a person's rent then than the minimum wage does now? Did I did I get that right? Yeah, and there's actually some great. Um, you know, I'm I am waiting for the Citizens League report to come out, and I'm waiting to hear all of the public input on this. But I'm also doing a lot of digging around myself, and there's some fascinating information online that you can find that converts, and I'm a policy wonk, so I find it fascinating. You might not, but uh, cost of living and inflation to now. And I was, I was especially interested in looking at when minimum wage was introduced to get back to that question of, well, what is a minimum wage supposed to do? So in other words, when it was first introduced, what, how, where was it set relative to the cost of living, for example? And there's, it, it's, it's, to be fully transparent, it's not true on every indicator, but housing, we know, is a crisis right now in our city. We have stagnant wages. We have a 2% housing vacancy rate in St. Paul, which is a crisis. Um, and so I specifically looked at rent. And yeah, a 25 cent minimum wage in 1938 went farther. I think it was like a $25 monthly rent at the time. 
um, than a 9.65 minimum wage does now to an average cost of, of a rent in St. Paul. So it's um, on that indicator at least you did better. And again, that was not a living wage at the time. That was meant to just keep women and children basically above essentially, you know, servant labor um, prices. Okay. Uh... Hey, I got a question about how you're doing outreach when you have like one person who is low wage. What kind of outreach do you do to get out uh, into the community? I sit on a lot of committees in Minneapolis uh, around homelessness, poverty, public safety, and I always like to get up from the table, go out and ask the people where they're at, how this is going to affect them. Sure. You mean as far as our committee? Like, yeah. how are we doing the outreach? Yeah. So what, what we've done is, so there's the folks who sit at the table, which is, what is it, 20 people? 20 people that sit at the table. Um, and then different folks at the table have organized different panels to be able to bring in voice. Like, I, we organized a low-wage worker panel to come in and talk about what low-wage workers are facing, a tipped worker panel, um, and different business panels. Yeah. I think, is that what you're Yeah, well, asking? sometimes it's best to get out where people are at, you know, in their environment. Uh, you know, when we talk about best practices and policies, I pr- I'm a strong proponent of talking. If we want to get the best practices and best policy, um, we don't need many meetings. We just need to go out and talk with the people, and we can get it done in a more efficient manner. Have you read Phase 1 study that the Citizens League released? Have you seen that yet? yet. It would be worth looking at. That's what Pahul Hoffman and her team did. Uh, That goes back to the 500-plus conversations that she had in the beginning of this year to figure out what the Phase 2 needed to look like, what that scope of work would be, to that exact point. What are are people really saying are the issues? So it's a a worthwhile reference point for us. Yeah. uh, Okay. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your thoughts. We heard about the employers. We've heard about uh, the community, what we're trying to solve for from a public policy perspective. How is the viewpoint of the consumer being represented in the scope of the project and also from the elected office person's chair in this conversation? Because at the end of the day, the music stops if the consumer stops spending money. That's a really good question. You know, I can't say. I mean, that's where, that's where I'm... A lot of us, I would say, are thinking about it from their own perspective. I can't say that we're really talking about that, Jim. You know, we're talking about the employees. So we're, and, and frankly, when the when this topic comes up about companies will leave, people will stop tipping. There is this overwhelming dismissal of that perspective, like, oh, that won't happen. It didn't happen in Seattle. It's not happening in Minneapolis. I would argue that absolutist position. It does. I mean, what we need to understand is whether we change the law such that we have a $15 minimum wage or not, there's a loser and there's a winner. And it's just life. Not everybody's going to win if we address – that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. But, but we, I have I've observed in our group that it's been really a dismissal of that as a relevant issue, that um, employers in particular have been waving the flag of – um, we're going to go out of business and nobody's going to buy from us. And the response is, that's not true. It hasn't happened elsewhere. It's not an issue. And the platitude is as far as we've gotten in that conversation. But I don't know. What do I you would, think? I mean, about I would that? add that just like, it's right. The research that has happened in the cities that have raised wages has shown that that has not actually been a problem. Um, 
or, or enough of, yeah, it hasn't been a problem. But I also think there's another thing to consider. Like by, we could make a decision to raise the wage. We could make a decision not to raise the wage. Either way, we're making a decision. And it is clear to me, based on the statistics and the 40% of folks in, um, you know, 185% of the poverty line, like, we cannot afford to not do anything. We actually, there is always a risk in changing things, but there is a risk in not doing anything. And I think that the, based on the information and the statistics we have, the risk is bigger if we do nothing than if we raise the wage on consumers, community, economy, et cetera. If I may, I would just say I was, I was initially stumped by the question because I, I really haven't heard a lot um, from the consumer standpoint. And I think that, that that may come out as we go along in the process. But I also think it speaks a lot to the people of St. Paul. And I don't say that in sort of a Pollyanna way. I really believe that people here are kind and generous and thoughtful. And when presented with a public policy solution to what we recognize as a critical social problem, um, they will they will step forward. And, and I would just say, regardless of what we decide on the wage, local businesses are struggling. So, you know, we're here at Amsterdam tonight. Thank you to Amsterdam. Everybody, yeah, I mean, we... We need to buy local no matter what happens with, with minimum wage. We are all going to need to step up and do our part to keep our strong small businesses vibrant. Okay, so last question. Uh, for uh, You all are deep in this process. As you noted, the process continues even after the Citizens League Committee. What, uh, without, um, I, and we haven't actually said specifically like the, the particular outcome because that's the work that you're doing right now. Yet, I'm wondering, how do we know if this process was successful? Right? Like, what is the outcome to say, like, at the end of it, doing, going through phase one, having a committee, going to having uh, public meetings to talk about this? How do we know if that all was successful at the end of the day and was worth this, this effort and work? You know, it's an interesting question because the deeper you get into this, the more thoughtful you have to be, and the more slowly we're proceeding. And I would say the more thoughtful all of us are on the nuances of this conversation. So that in and of itself, I think, is tremendous. I think it speaks to a room of 20 people and the staff who all are saying, what is wise for us? And how can we make a wise decision for us? Because this isn't about an us versus them or we're making a decision for folks over there. It's about our families. How can we be wise? So in my mind... We're already victorious. My experience has been inclusive. I've had some folks who perhaps would disagree with me on some part of this who pull me aside and say, hey, can we talk about this? Wow. I mean, that's fabulous. Um, We may disagree or agree on something, but we're going to leave this and we're going to be friendly and loving and good people disagree and we're still good people and we can still be friends. And I think if nothing else, this exercise is proving that. And the only thing I can say to the broader community is, if you can trust the process that there are people as thoughtful as you would be, maybe as informed, maybe not as informed as you, but we're getting there, who are as interested as you are in making a wise recommendation to other folks. And because at the end of the day, again, there will be losers, right? And that, that, should, that should break everybody's heart. And I agree with you that doing nothing is more risky than doing something. So, I mean, that's my perspective. It's already a success. And you'll get our recommendations, and the mayor and the council get to choose what you, how they want to do it. Um, so that's my thought. What do you think? Yeah, I think that um, one little piece I want to add is that 
when we, when we talk about enforcement, which is something I'm very passionate about, we talk about enforcement, we're also talking about outreach and education. And I think that all of this requires the city to invest in supporting small businesses and helping them figure out how to make this shift. And like, how, how do they do their books differently? What's the technical assistance that they need? And so I think um, success in this is that we've built a policy that really creates the opportunity for people to make a living wage live their lives with dignity and joy, and that um, that also helps feed the economy that small businesses are able to do well. And I would basically echo what my colleagues up here have said. I would say two things. One, reducing the poverty rate in St. Paul, and especially the childhood poverty rate, which is even higher. Um, and then second, I, I would... I think it would be success if people, I'm not sure if anybody will ever necessarily say I liked the process. Uh, <laughs> I think that might be a pipe I just, dream. I don't know about the outcome, but I love the process. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. happen. Those um, meetings were just great. Yeah. Uh. But if people can come out of this feeling like they better understand someone else's point of view, which I think we need to do a lot more of as a community, I think it will have been a success. Well, on that note, please, one more time, a big round of applause for our three amazing guests. Uh, yeah, you can just leave them on the chairs. We're gonna... The show was recorded live at the Amsterdam Barn Hall in St. Paul. If you'd like to attend a show in person or even work with us, you can find out more information at our website at www.t2p2.net. It was also made possible by a cultural star grant from the city of St. Paul.